We are in the continuing our passage or our, our series in the Psalms, and tonight we're in Psalm three. But before we get to Psalm three, I wanted just to say a couple of things by way of reminder um, that we've looked at over the last two weeks. We hit Psalm one and Psalm two in the last two weeks, and these are the introductory psalms to this whole book, the Songbook of God's People. And the two lessons that we learned out of Psalm one and Psalm two, the primary lessons. The first was Psalm one. That openness to the instruction of God. In other words, a heart that is submitted to God and not running in its own way is the path to blessing. It's like that tree planted by a stream of water that bears its fruit in its season and doesn't wither or grow old. Its roots are in this right, this this proper place. So that was the first introductory note of the Psalms. An openness, a listening ear, a submitted ear to the work and will of God. And then the second Psalm Um, gave us this great declaration that is the central heart of what the Psalms proclaim from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, which is this declaration that the Lord reigns. That despite what you experience, what you see around you, the Lord is reigning and ruling over all the earth. And that the, the blessed man is the man who takes refuge in him, who submits to him, entrusts himself to him, trusts in him in every way. Not those who scheme and connive and push away and against him. So these two uh, introductory instructions lead us into Psalm 3, which is the first of the prayers that we really get, the first of these intercessory prayers that we get in the book of the Psalms. And right off the bat, we get two insights that I want to give to you out of Psalm 3. One is really before. Psalm 3 begins with this um, subscription or um, this, this editorial note about the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, most biblical scholars across all kinds of traditions are agreed that these subscriptions to the psalms, these editorial notes, were added after the fact, at some point at a later date than when the psalm originated. Um, Be that as it may, what this does for us at the very beginning of the book of the psalms is it, it says that all of prayer is situated. It places you in a storyline. It puts you in a narrative. And it says to us that prayer before the living God is not something that takes place only in a monastery, removed from, whether that be a figurative or a literal monastery, removed from and away from the context of the messy world that we live in. But that prayer arises out of and takes as its basic material the story that each one of us is living in our daily lives whether that be a story at this point of shock and grief or of joy and elation. Prayer is situated and it arises out of this story of life. I want to read uh, a quote from Eugene Peterson who talks about the the opposite of, uh, of really situated prayer as spiritualized prayer, a temptation for all of us in the church. He says, spiritualized prayer is denatured prayer. Prayer in which all the dirt and noise of ordinary life is boiled out. It is a prayer that cultivates exalted feelings and sublime thoughts. It is prayer that is embarrassed by the coarse subject matter that intrudes itself into most 24-hour periods, but takes great pleasure in grand aphorisms. It is escapist prayer with scheduled flights to the Empyrean. That's not prayer, according to the Bible. 
Prayer according to the Bible, prayer according to the Psalms is prayer that's situated in the nitty-gritty details of life, in the highs and the lows. And so that's the first thing that we pick up from this editorial note in the Psalms. Specifically, in this case, the, the note is that this Psalm is situated for us in David's flight from Absalom, his son. The reading we took out of 2 Samuel 15, where David's son Absalom has killed David's son Amnon, who raped his half-sister Tamar in chapter 13. In chapter 14, or in chapter 13, Absalom kills Amnon. Chapter 14, David forgives Absalom. And in chapter 15, which is where he took our reading from, Absalom begins this revolt against David, his father and begins to win over the hearts of the people of Israel to his own name. And then David has to flee his own rightful kingdom because of the the civil war that's brought on by his son. So that's the situatedness of the prayer of Psalm 3. Psalm 3 begins with these words, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. If the first insight that we get from that note is that prayer is situated in our daily lives, that the stuff of life is the the content of prayer, the second thing that we get out of these first two verses is that the, the most common context of that situatedness is trouble. It's trouble. It's problem. It's dire straits. Many, 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 writes David. Three many's in a row. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. Many. Things aren't well with David. Let me go back to Peterson for just a second. See if you identify with these words. The human condition teeters on the edge of disaster. Human beings are in trouble most of the time. Those who don't know they are in trouble are in the worst of trouble. Prayer is the language of the people who are in trouble and know it, and who believe or hope that God can get them out. As prayer is practiced, it moves into other levels and develops other forms. But trouble, being in the wrong, Being in danger, realizing that foes are too many for us to handle, is the basic provocation for prayer. We can can substantiate that claim by simply saying that even people who don't believe in God, when they get into really big trouble, find themselves crying out, Oh God, help me. In our most desperate of situations, even the most unreligious of us, will cry out to a higher power for help. So situated, situatedness and then arising out of trouble. And listen to what troubles tell us again in verse 2. These are David's troubles, these flesh and blood enemies. But all of us can identify with trouble at one level or another. Listen to what these troubles say. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. If you think about what are the things that are causing you pain,
pain and perplexity right now, the things that sometimes we can't understand, that we don't understand, the challenges, the hardships. It could be relational. It could be financial. It could be health-oriented. It could be all kinds of things. You fill in the blank. But all of us have these kinds of circumstances. And those things often join voices with the rest of the things like that in the world and say what? There's no salvation for you in God. They strike out with this assertion. God isn't really real. God won't really rescue you. God doesn't really care. They assert these things. And they say there is no salvation for you in God. Psalm 2.12 last week. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The troubles cry out and say no. Blessed is the man who takes his own path and goes his own way. Because there is no salvation for those who take refuge in this God. That's what the troubles say. They prick at us and they bring about doubts. They, They cause us to question the goodness of the God that we proclaim. They may even cause us to question His existence. And they shout out against us that taking refuge in God is a foolish path. There is no salvation in God. And these troubles that are the provocation of all prayer present us like last, last week with another choice before us as we enter the Psalms. And it's the choice of believing this assertion of autonomy, of rejection of, of God that the troubles will proclaim to us as people. That's one choice. Or it's this choice of faith, of trusting and believing in the God who made all that we see and the God who comes to the aid of his people. So this psalm, if anything, presents to us a great illustration of the way of faith triumphing in the midst of trouble, in the midst of dire straits, in the midst of a chorus gathered around that says there is no salvation for him and God. And you get this great beginning of verse 3, but you... But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord. This is the answer of faith in the midst of a world of trouble. But you, O Lord. Though the mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me protecting and covering me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Three manys, verses 1 and 2. Three responses of faith. But you, O Lord, that is the declaration of faith. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. You surround me. You protect me. My glory... Whereas there are many foes gathering around me, you, God, are a shield protecting me. Whereas many are rising against me, rising up against me, you, Lord, are the lifter of my head, which is another way of saying deliverance. You're bringing about deliverance. And where many are mocking me and saying this way of faith that you've chosen to walk in a world that denies it again and again and again, 
You, God, are my glory. You bestow upon me glory. You bestow upon me honor by your good name, by your great salvation. These three types of deliverance contrast the three types of foes rising against the psalmist. And he says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I cry aloud to God in this faith in the midst of trouble and God answers. So this is the faith of Psalm 3. This is the faith that's commended to us. And then you get the results of that faith in verses 5 and 6 where it says basically, I have peace. I have a daily sense of nourishment and rest in the midst of circumstances that should otherwise say this is impossible. Where the world would say, what you're going through, what you're experiencing, there's no way in the midst of that that you can have that kind of peace. We know those stories, don't we? Of Christian brothers and sisters who have walked through tremendous trials and suffering and done so with that kind of faith that defies their circumstances and gives glory to the God who is real and the God who prevails. And that's what verses 5 and 6 say. They say, basically, as I offer up this prayer to God, I can lay down and sleep. I can lay down and sleep. The I of verses 5 and 6 can lay down and sleep because the but you, the you of verses 3 and 4 is a shield around him. Because there is a shield around us, we can lay down and sleep. We can have a daily kind of nourishment and refreshment in the midst of any and every circumstance because of the God who is our refuge, the God who's ruling and reigning over the world around us. He says, I'm not afraid that thousands of people have set themselves against me. That word thousands is related to the word many, a reference back to verse 1. I will not be afraid. In other words, my identity and my destiny are more determined by the ultimate reality of God than they are by the non-ultimate reality of circumstances around me. And so I can have peace. I can have peace. Okay. Trouble, faith, the results of faith in that peace and nourishment day to day in the midst of circumstances that the world says are impossible. Leading to verse 7, petition. In the midst of the trouble, despite the fact that there can be faith and peace, there is, there is heartfelt petition from the people of God when trouble arises. So we get these words of verse 7, Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Arise, save me, O my God. This is us in trouble, us in circumstances that we don't understand, in situations that we long to be different than they are, crying out to the God who's first spoken to us, the God who's given himself to us, who's pledged himself to us, who's demonstrated his love for us in the cross of Jesus and crying out to him and saying, Arise, O God. Save me, my God. That's come to my aid. Come to my rescue in the midst of this trouble. I do trust in you. I do yield to you and to your sovereign and inscrutable will. But I'm going to petition you by faith to arise and have mercy. To arise and come to deliver. 
I'm going to petition you to do precisely what all of these troubles are telling me that you cannot do, which is to save. Save me, O my God. Save me. Verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. That's the same word. Precisely what the troubles say cannot happen. The man or woman by faith cries out to God and says, no, save me, my God. These things will happen. And we defy those circumstances and cry out to a God who can save. And then he professes something. That's the petition, save me, my God. But he professes something. He says, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist says God strikes the enemies precisely in the, in the, the part of the body that's giving mouth to this assertion that God cannot save. He's striking in the cheek and breaking the teeth so that that claim that so much of our world resounds in a chorus and says God cannot save will be broken. And that anti-God assertion cannot go forward because God will prevail. And he says salvation, this is the great affirmation of the psalm, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Not what the world says. Not what my circumstances say. But by faith, what God has proclaimed to be true and what God has shown to be true in the cross of Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So that even though the world says that the way of blessing and the way of life is not to take refuge in this God who who you claim to believe in, but it's to go your own way and to do your own thing. But it's, it's saying, he's saying that This is the way to blessing. It's to take refuge and to proclaim that salvation belongs to our Lord in the midst of any and every circumstance. Refuge, not self-assertion, is the way of blessing. Yielding to God in the midst of any and every circumstance is the way of blessing. Life, in other words, is something that we receive and not something that we manufacture. And so faith takes this posture of refuge and dependence over and against striving and pursuing things in our own way. Here's the big picture as we come to a close. All of us as followers of Jesus have been called out of a situation in which we were diseased, in which we were dirty, and in which we were dead. We've been called out of that situation by a God who spoke before we ever muttered a sound. And God has healed those who were diseased. He's cleansed those who were dirty. And he's revived and resurrected those who were dead. This is the big picture. That's the situation. In midst of our situatedness of any kind of trouble, that's the bigger situation. God has done these things. And what we proclaim by faith is that God will one day, our Revelation 7 reading, He will one day bring about a full and final sense of this salvation in the midst of the very world of trouble that we experience every day. In the midst of the world of tears and of disappointments and of discouragements, we proclaim what Revelation 7 said, that one day God will wipe away every tear from our eye. 
So my question is this. What do we do in between to close? What do we do in between? What about now? What are we promised? I want to hold up to you three people that you probably knew as children. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as a model for life and for us. Listen to what they say to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They'd been asked to bow down and serve a false god. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What I mean to say by holding up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is to say that I don't believe that the biblical witness enables us in the midst of this kind of petitionary prayer of Psalm 3 to name it and to claim it. Because to do so is to say that we have taken the place of a sovereign God whose will is above and beyond anything that we can know. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say is they say, our God is able. Our God is able in the midst of any circumstance to deliver us in this present time. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt, O King, that he will deliver us in the day to come. But our God is able to deliver us in this day, from this trouble, in this trial. But if he chooses not to, O King, we will not serve your God. We will not listen to the assertion that there is no salvation for them in God. But we will continue to proclaim in the midst of every trouble and every trial that salvation belongs to our God, who has demonstrated this once and for all in the cross of Jesus, and who is coming again to rescue his people in every, in every full way that we can imagine. I hold up Paul as another example, who in 2 Corinthians 12 says, I prayed three times that, that God would take away this thorn in my flesh. But God would not take it away. And what does God say? What does Jesus say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, the, the blessed life of Psalm 2.12 Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, which is the picture we get in Psalm 3 of a man in great trouble and trial. is not a life apart from the, the trouble and the trials and the sufferings of the world that we know. The blessed life is found in the midst of those trials and troubles and sufferings. In the fact that our God is nearer to us than any trouble or any trial. You know these words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things 
in all these things, in all these troubles and trials, in this persecution, in this tribulation, in the stuff that I don't understand, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We petition with all of our heart. Arise, O God, save me, my Lord. We proclaim in any and every circumstance, salvation belongs to our God. But with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we say, our God is able, but even if he chooses not to, we will still proclaim salvation belongs to our God. And nothing can separate us from his love in the midst of the trial that we're walking through. That's the prayer of faith, and that's the posture of faith that we get launching out of Psalm 3 and in through the rest of the biblical witness that is our call as God's people. Amen.